Welcome to the third episode of A Dissident's Guide to the Constitution, hosted by Alex Thompson. As ever, I'm joined by Mike Robinson of UK Column and David Scott of Northern Exposure. In the first two episodes, we've considered first what a constitution is, in other words, the framework for how we live our lives and are governed. And in the second episode, we went on to talk about common law in its various definitions. Among the very interesting feedback that we've had from people in various countries on the first two episodes has been an American commenting that the phrase that Mike and I used in episode one, how we are governed or how we are ruled in the present tense, is one that Americans have been trained not to use. Because to their mind, they don't have people ruling them, but we the people rule ourselves or govern ourselves as they are much more uh, attuned to saying. Which brings us on really to the theme for this evening, which is rights. Rights have to be considered, of course, before we go on to any more specific detail of how a country is set up. Rights are the red lines, at least in the classical understanding, that say this far and no further with my body, my mind, my soul, my family, my property, my country. But, as usual, there is a mess of contradictory definitions of rights. So, Let's start then with the parameters of what rights are. Would either of you gentlemen like to jump in and say how far back you think it goes that the discourse of rights, perhaps in the phrase human rights is what we should be thinking of mainly, started to get muddied? What was the point, do you think, in recent history in which people started to think about rights in ways that couldn't be made to fit with the classic understanding? Well, most of these things went wrong in 1947. So uh, if you're asking me to guess, I would, I would put it as far back as that. You better develop that, David, because you and I and Mike and others working with us have spoken about that post-war government. Most uh, Western countries had a socialistic uh, technocratic regime after the Second World War, just as they did, they did in the 30s as well, anti-religious, anti-traditional. But Britain had a particularly severe one in the Clement Attlee government, uh, one of the last governments in which every minister is more or less a household name because he brought in a sweeping bill to revolutionise his portfolio and how that was uh, lived out in the country. What is it about the 47-48 period that is so striking? Well, that's a good question. Partly it's the fact that it's so fundamental. The changes they made changed the country out of all recognition. They had come out of the war and the explanation was well, look, central control, central planning, it won us the war, it won us the peace. Many successful private sector, charitable sector, parts of the British society were hoovered up into the state. There was a vast expansion of the state power, vast expansion of its economic reach, and a consequent diminution of the control that individuals held over their own lives. Now, it was quite disastrous in many ways, immediately so. We had more rationing after the war than we had before the war, for example. But most of it stuck, and it never really got reversed. The subsequent conservative governments, as they so often do, acted as a, a break on further development, but didn't regain any lost ground. And such things as the relationship between the individual and the state uh, the definition of what it is to be British, how we get health care, how we get the authority we have over 
building on their own land. All of these things were fundamentally changed in the, the period 1946 to 1948. So basically, the government took our rights away in shorthand. Yes, it, 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 it stole the authority from the people and aggregated it towards the middle and gave it, gave it the name socialism, gave it the name, you know, in, the, in name of the people we are doing all of these things. But individuals found that they had much less freedom. They had many fewer rights. So what's going on here is the socialistic government that wins the election against Sir Winston Churchill in 1945, just as the dying members of the world in June 1945, so victory in Europe's already happened, victory in Japan not yet, general election. The manifesto is quite plain. Socialism will come. And that manifesto is implemented. Uh, you no longer have an automatic right to build on your own land. You have fewer rights as to how your child will be educated, because if you don't know how to pull the levers well enough to homeschool, then you will have this curriculum and an embryo curriculum of citizenship and so on comes in. Uh, and at the same time, so Winston Churchill and his Conservative Party that come back into office in Britain in 1950 signed Britain up to an organisation in Strasbourg that predates any form of the EU, even the original form, the EEC, and that is the Council of Europe. Quite a widely respected body that supposedly is there to hold every member state, and that's the whole of geographical Europe. There's, there's you know, 50-odd countries in the Council of Europe, hold each other to minimum standards, and they enunciate rights a language of rights. We've had the Second World War, we've had these horrors, therefore we put together a charter that says for the first time there are human rights, we're taking a discourse which comes out of the French Revolution 150 years prior, Les Droits de l'Homme with capital letters, the rights of man, spelt with capital R, capital M, which as we've seen is the, uh, that which is invoked in the preamble of all the French constitutions. The rights of man, married with the common law United Kingdom government pushing this as well, are embodied in this charter uh, that the Council of Europe promulgates, and it speaks about the right to a fair trial, the right to freedom of conscience, and the like. However, what goes on is when these are defined in the ECHR document, the European Convention on Human Rights, as it's known, and it later has a court uh, with the same acronym, ECHR, sometimes ECTHR, the European Court of uh, Human Rights, to judge on infringements of these by governments, we find that the court in practice says, no, your rights were not always infringed uh, as a plaintiff taking, this, taking your own government to court in the way that you think, because these rights are not absolute. There are derogations permissible from the right to freedom of assembly, the right to freedom of expression. Uh, what you might think is the right to a fair trial might be too narrowly defined. You might not have the right to a jury that you thought, or the right to certain evidentiary standards and burdens of proof that you thought, because the state has rights too, and we have to balance them. You've missed out a particular event, uh, and that was the establishment of the United Nations and the, the Human Rights Commission. And in 1948, Eleanor Roosevelt, with her de Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that was described at the time as the international Magna Carta for all mankind. I don't think that was terribly uh, appropriate description, but anyway, that's what it was called. And it seems to be based on the same kinds of principles as the ECHR. Yes, there are countries on the continent here, Austria and the Netherlands, that in their constitution say we are uh, monist, not dualist in our doctrine. So we don't need a twin track. We just need 
our country to have ratified the UDHR, which came out of San Francisco, or the ECHR that came out of Strasbourg, if our country is an accessory to those treaties, then I will automatically, because the Constitution tells me to, uh, disregard any national statutes or customs or precedent or senses of uh, historically what's right and, and minimum in favour of these new freshly minted pieces of paper. They will take precedence. I will implement them directly as the judge for my national court. So I become the judge for a world court without having changed my robe. Now, Alex, something I wanted to hear from you in particular was because I've always argued that the principle of human rights as opposed to God-given unalienable rights, is that human rights are based on the presumption of a blank piece of paper and rights are then given by the state or the organisation that has generated the piece of paper with the rights listed on them, whether it's called a Bill of Rights or whatever it happens to be. And it seems to me that this is a thread that runs through this whole conversation when we're talking about the common law and constitutions common law versus uh, Napoleonic or civil law in, the, in Europe, is where does the presumption lie? If the presumption is that we have some kind of creator, some kind of God, or some kind of power which is superior to humans, uh, and that rights stem from that, uh, and that there's a presumption of unalienable rights, which they can't be infringed, as opposed to the blank piece of paper where human beings and governments and, and organizations are saying, we have determined that you, other human beings out there, have the rights which we have decided that you're entitled to and no more. So the, principle, the principles are opposite to each other. They're completely at odds with each other. And I had this very argument with my old boss at GCHQ, who is now a, a radical EU-supporting, well, I would say, modern totalitarian in this regard. He said to me in terms that human rights don't need any sense of God-givenness or any anchoring in history because we are post-enlightenment men. And if the majority of us in our right mind think something, then that's enough to create or remove or modify a right. You no longer have a right to bring your children up your own, uh, in your own way because we've decided that's barbaric. Uh, so he was quite explicit. That seems to me the very definition of totalitarianism. But we already have it, David, because courts in any country that are accessory to the ECHR, so North American and Australasian listeners won't be familiar with this language yet, but we are in all the jurisdictions in the UK and we will be after Brexit as well, because this is nothing to do with the EU particularly, to do with the ECHR in Strasbourg. All those jurisdictions have language which got passed into UK statute law in 1998 with Tony Blair's, one of his first uh, bills for his first legislative year, the Human Rights Act. And that language is infringement of human rights must be necessary and proportionate in a democratic society. And democracy is the theme, by the way, of our uh, next podcast. And then we get a step further and people preaching or simply giving political opinions or opinions that a man is a man and a woman is a woman can get arrested by their police in various parts of the British Isles. Because, and that will be upheld in court because the judges will then say, oh no, your opinions fall outside the scope of the protection of the freedom of expression, which isn't an absolute right, but a qualified right, like most of those in the second section of the ECHR, the only absolute ones being the right to life and the right not to be tortured and so on. It's a qualified right, sir or madam. And in this case, uh, the government was quite correct to curtail it because the opinion you were espousing on the streets at that time and place is not worthy of respect in a 
what's the next word, democratic society. David, what's gone on here? Has democracy taken away rights that we had under tyranny? Well, it seems it has. Now, just to, just to give you an example from the last uh, week or so in the British Parliament, we've had a claim stretching back some months now that it's necessary and proportionate to lock us all in our homes, to close down businesses, to prevent people earning a living, to prevent us seeing our friends and neighbours because COVID's going to get you and it's not much of a threat. So we've now seen a paper go into the parliament in London to say, well, look, locking people away in their homes and preventing free movement, that's a, that's a huge imposition, a huge rollback of, of personal liberty and an assault on rights. And we've done it and we've, we've all agreed, haven't we, that it's necessary and proportionate. And the we've all there, of course, is their own discipline, the philosophy of law. Those two academics from Oxford and two from York are largely legal philosophers. So we, our fraternity, have agreed that we take the French language. It is nécessaire and it is uh, proportionnel. Therefore, you can do it. And the extension of this was, well, taking people and forcibly vaccinating them. So this is forcibly medicating people. This is taking away their bodily autonomy. This is causing them physical injury against their will. This is a, a getting to the absolute core of what rights stand for. That, they were arguing in this paper, is really no, no worse than what we've already done. So why not? Let's go the extra mile to beat COVID and uh, remove your right to bodily autonomy as well. Which closes the circle because I didn't really address Mike's question as it deserved, which is where's the polarity? What's the presumption here? And we're basically now eating the bitter fruit, although it's sweet to the palate of, of many who rule over us, and many, uh, I should say, in the bourgeois class, uh, the bitter fruit of what was sown and seeded in the mid-18th century. There was an enlightenment in various parts of Europe at that time. It had different flavours. There was a French enlightenment, a German enlightenment, a Scots enlightenment, an English enlightenment. There were various degrees of atheism and free thinking in each of these countries and basically philosophical schools of writers. But from about the 1750s onwards, with a lot of countries such as Scotland suddenly having the conditions for this kind of thought to take place in, in peace and comfort and prosperity, something could say, well, we're not going to put up with the kings there because God says so anymore. Uh, just like the ancient Greeks did in similar situations of having leisure and education. We have to find a basis for that. And the king has to improve our lot as well. And he mustn't infringe our absolute rights. Let's bring in the proper language here. We have immunities. We are immune from being fiddled with by the executive in this way. And uh, there's a closely allied word of uh, inviolability, which is even more physical. You know, in, in, if you want to be technical about diplomats, for example, they have both immunity, which is that uh, the legislature can't, legal, can't declare laws that diplomats must do this or not do that, but they can't be touched by the police, which is part of the executive either. They can't be violated as to their person. Right, so the Enlightenment starts off with this position. But those who are mainly interested in overturning the Roman Catholic Church or other churches say, well, the only way we're going to guarantee our rights against these tyrants is to sing with the French revolutionaries of the 19th century, no one will save us, no God, no Caesar, no tribune, no general. And so the state is going to have to guarantee these rights. And so that's why you get, after half a century of social tensions, the French Revolution declaring the droit de l'homme, the rights of man. 
and this going like a wildfire around benighted parts of continental Europe where they'd only ever been dictated to. And not just by kings either, but uh, Switzerland, for example, was a republican tyranny where some cantons farmed other cantons as slaves. And in fact, when Napoleon rolled in and said to the Swiss, well, you're not a, you're not a noble republic, really, you're, you're a slavery republic, I'm going to give you equal rights. The Swiss said, no, we insist on you giving back the slavery and the, uh, the ability to uh, abuse others that we had before you came along. So it's not the simple continentals versus Brits picture that it's often made out to be. But anyway, at that time, the French and then other countries around them got into the habit of saying, we have these rights, as, as Mike was outlining, because our government has given them to us. Only at that stage, there wasn't that much money in the coffers and technology was only just getting going. So the idea that the state could give you positive goods, basically money and advantage, was not feasible. But a key word in your first remarks, David, comes in here, social or economic. Economic is what you said. Because what they get in the 1940s is a new generation, again driven by French socialistic thinking largely, that the government doesn't just have to give me negative rights, the right not to be tortured, the right not to be spied upon. But it must also give me positive rights, a new generation of socio-economic rights. I have a right to work. I have a right to money. I have a right to opportunities in the job market. Well, either of you say, how can a government produce these rights for somebody without stealing and infringing upon other people? Well, this is this is the thing. This is the this is the big thing where we start having rights. Ultimately, it all falls down to I have a right to another person's labour. Healthcare is an example. You have a right to healthcare. Well, healthcare doesn't just magically exist. Someone has to work to produce the healthcare. Someone has to build the hospital. Someone has to nurse the patients. Someone has to make the diagnosis. Now. If I have a right to healthcare, then I have a right to the labor of all of these people. Now, if I have a right to your labor, you're called a slave. And the effect that this is having is it's making us all part-time slaves. This is very different from the original meaning of right. Looking at an older definition here, rights, that quality in a person by which he can do certain actions or possess certain things which belongs to him by virtue of some title. So it's about ownership. You own your own body. So you can defend your own body. You could use force if necessary. You own your property. You can defend your property using force if necessary. Which is why the common law to this day says if you're in England or even in Scotland with the watering down of it, if someone comes into your house and won't leave, you can use reasonable force. In the civil law jurisdiction, such as where I'm sitting, the most you can do is immobilize him, pin him down. You can't throw him out. It comes down to that level because the state hasn't given you that degree of ability. So if you take a concept that's based on you can use violence to defend these rights, you could use force, and you extend it to say you have the right to someone else's labor, then you're extending that you can force that person to give of his labor, whether he wants to or not. And it becomes very insidious. It becomes a constant eating away of individual rights. And the justification is always that the state, the state is good. The state will make wise decisions. The state will weigh up individual rights and the greater good will prevail. That's it. So a, a judge will say, I have to balance Mr. Scott's right to his own money against Mr. Won't Work's uh, need for some pennies. Yeah? Or the other justification is the straw man. It's not the common good or the, the public good or the need of the state always. Sometimes it is 
the straw man argument. Mr. Thompson, you cannot go out on the street and say God has given us immunities uh, because there are people on this street, fictitious ones, they don't need to appear in court, uh, they can exist in the judge's mind, fictitious people who have a right to freedom, not just your freedom of expression matters, but their right to freedom from your expression. Or, Mr. Robinson, you cannot possibly send your children to a school where this is taught or that is not taught because your children have a theoretical right to be protected from certain views of yours or a right to be given certain equipping for life, as it would usually be called, which means they have to be taught certain things, including very nasty things, as we see in Scotland now, about what kinds of sex one is supposed to try as a teen or, or if, as a preteen. It goes extremely far, this. And it, it starts by granting in the 18th century that there is anything philosophical about rights. Now, you, you said at the outset here, you described one of your former colleagues at GCHQ, and his justification for this was we're post-Enlightenment, so we're post-modern. And the Enlightenment made certain strides which undermined some aspects of the society that we had lived in. But the post-modern the post-Enlightenment thinking that we're now living in is a constant attack on all of these older ideas and principles that our society is founded on. And it uses, it uses ideas like rights to form a, an, an unrelenting attack on these because everything that's desirable becomes a right. And then all these rights conflict. And who is to judge who is to guide um, the, the foolish people as they interact with one another, each demanding their conflicting rights? Well, only the state and the wise ruler has the, has the wisdom necessary to guide his childlike charges uh, towards uh, righteousness so they can become good like the ruler. The ultimate end point of this is that rights are now uh, accruing power to the centre at a rate we've not seen um, in, in modern times. Can I just address this a little bit? Because, of course, uh, one of the things that we've seen, well, we've been talking about it uh, over the last previous couple of programmes, um, about the differences between Britain as a common law country versus Europe and other parts of the world. And, and David's absolutely right, because as the, the common law principle of unalienable, unalienable rights has been diminished and replaced with human rights, then the presumption of unalienable rights has been transferred to the state. And so if we look at the relationship between us as individuals and the state, historically in Britain, we've had certain principles in place, and eventually those arrived to be challenged in a court case. And of course, it's a very famous court case Antic versus Carrington, the principle that came out of that court case was that the state has no right to do anything unless it's expressly authorized by law, whereas the individual has the right to do anything except where it's forbidden by law. Now, as time has gone on, that principle has been lost so that when we come up to date, and the Localism Act, for example, the Localism Act gives local authorities the power to do anything. The state is attempting to, to transfer onto effectively a dead body, a, a local authority, the, the rights which traditionally apply to us as flesh and blood human beings. And this started, of course, with the uh, County Councils Act of 1881, 
which accepted that there had previously been concepts of the men of the county and its subdivisions, the, dis the district and the hundred, and there had been constables of that county. And although county councils had existed in some form prior to 1881 in England and Wales, that was the year when the statute said from now on, all that was in common law, the duty of the local men or in some assembly thereof, lawful assembly, becomes the duty of this statutory body, the county council. And from that, we go forward a hundred and something years to the point where Tony Blair says to officials on the visit to Devon, well, you've been given powers, use them. Or he, uh, we find that uh, health officials in Staffordshire say, I have been given powers to do anything I want. But David, what is a power vis-a-vis -a, -vis a right? Because you have worked this out in practice in a couple of cases. Yes, um, a power and a right are in many ways in common English, virtually synonymous. But in the legal world, they're very much not. We were doing some pro bono work fighting against a local authority who were after some money from a local homeowner who had no money. We got to the point where we said to the local authority, they had served a notice and we had discharged the notice by means of seeking communication and clarification. And uh, we then pointed out that without a notice in place, they'd no means of recovering any funds. And this was the end of the discussion. And we were suddenly then discussing with their senior solicitor, who came back and said in a very haughty manner, you have no power to discharge a notice, thinking that this was our first rodeo. When we replied to them, we absolutely agree we have no power. Of course, we need no power because we have a right. We never heard from her again. Now, the key idea here is powers are delegated. If you have rights over your own body, you have rights to direct your own life, you can delegate some of this authority to someone else with the power of attorney. It comes from you down to the person who's been handed the power. That power can never be used against your will. You have delegated that. You can remove that authority as easily as you gave it. A right is something that is inherent, that is there all the time, that, is not, that does not require another to grant it. It is there perpetually. It is there whether or not another party wants it to be there. It is there uh, in a, an absolute sense. So it's quite different from a power. Um, and it's one of the deceptive legal words that people in the legal profession have been known to um, fool the public with, claiming that they have powers when they have none. But the word is frightening. It's not just the legal profession or industry which is guilty here by muddying rights with powers. It's also at the same stage, the 1990s, the Blair era, the Human Rights Act being enacted. It's also the school system, isn't it? When it becomes a system with a much tighter curriculum from about 1990 onwards. Because what comes in in the 1990s is at primary schools, you get citizenship education. What's the dialogue in citizenship education? Rights and responsibilities. In the English language, it alliterates well with the letter R. So the children, having been taught Tuppence Hatney, by uh, a primary school teacher in one afternoon are told to put big cardboard displays up on what rights and responsibilities are, or paper displays. And what you then see is the children who have no information and certainly haven't been taught about immunity or God or history or Entink versus Carrington, have to work out for themselves how each of their rights is balanced by a responsibility. 
And so they came up with, in one example I saw, you've got a right to play football, but you've got a responsibility not to break someone's window while doing it. So but really, this is, you know, we, we smile here because this is infantile, literally infantile, as you'd expect of infants, small children anyway. But the dialogue hasn't got any further here on the continent, even in a very well-developed nation like the Netherlands, under civil law than that. Because you will hear people say, that policeman's out of order. But if he, if he comes up to me with his cap on and says, jump, I must obey him, mustn't I? So it really has seeped through this understanding. Rights, yes, but we must balance them with responsibilities, you know. And whereas the, to get a better understanding, it's the corollary that you must look for, because with rights come obligations. If I have a right to my life, you have an obligation not to um, threaten my life, not to take my life. And the, the contrast with powers is more stark, because with powers come liabilities. Right. If 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 you give someone power of attorney, they, power of attorney, they are liable to execute that. They have got responsibilities placed on them. They have got liabilities placed on them. It's an entirely different thing. Thank you. You just explained to me. I'm, I'm sure Mike wants to come in at a moment, but you just explained to me why supranational bodies and their corollaries in British and U.S. local government, who have this same discourse, uh, why they talk about limited, sorry, limitless powers. It is because they are operating on delegated powers, not rights. Therefore, uh, they don't have obligations. Yeah? So that is why technocratic bodies, such as the European Commission, elected by nobody but appointed, can say the European Parliament has delegated certain legislation to us. There are delegated acts by which we, officials at the European Commission, can decide the guts of what you're allowed to fish for, what you're allowed to spray on your land, how we can check you when our inspectors can turn up. That has not come through rights in any sense. It's come through delegation. And of course, many constitutions are explicit about this. Sadly, the British constitution is not, nor its predecessors, the English and Scots constitutions. I'm not suggesting they're dead, but historically they precede it. Some continental civil law constitutions have actually said you cannot delegate beyond two iterations in this chain. And, and Supreme Courts have upheld that, the Dutch fluoride case. The Dutch Supreme Court says uh, ministers delegated to officials the decision on whether or not to force people to drink fluoride in their drinking water, uh, but they shouldn't have done that. That delegation was unlawful. The people put the powers in the minister's hands because the ministers could be held to account in Parliament. An official can't be questioned in Parliament, so you are acting ultra vires, beyond your powers there. But while we're on powers versus rights and their flip sides, liabilities versus obligations, there's even more words we have to mention in the, the final few minutes because the language is really getting quite packed at this stage in the deformation of the discourse of rights. We've gone through several generations. Negative rights have become positive. Political and religious rights have become socioeconomic, you know, forcing someone else to pay. And along with that comes a new word to balance and dislodge the idea of equality. Equality in the common law largely relates to being treated fairly uh, at court. Equality of arms, that is that the state can't provide a bottomless pit of money for a legal defence when you sue uh, an out-of-order official. 
they must appear in person uh, if you're doing that too. That's the principle. It's, it's honoured more in the breach than in the uh, actual performance thereof. They, ca- they can in Scotland. Ah, I was finding just today that the same is true in the Netherlands. Uh, defamation will not be prosecuted by the Dutch public attorneys unless an alleged victim of defamation comes along to the police and says, please pass a file to the public prosecutor, I've been defamed. There will be no fishing expeditions or or opportunistic prosecutions, except, says the Dutch public prosecutor, if it's an alleged defamation of a state employee, current or former, in which case we will go after them without there being any need for people saying that they were a victim thereof. But you've seen that in Scotland too, haven't you, David? Well, in Scotland, and it took us ages to find out where this was coming from, it transpires that it's in the conditions of contract for people who work for Scottish government, Scottish local government, anything in the public sector. There's a clause in there that says, if this employee, this state employee, finds himself in civil or indeed criminal legal proceedings in something that is even tangentially related to his job as a state official or his former job as a state official. And if the government considers that it's in the interests of the government, not justice, not the people, not anything else, government, uh, then they will take that case on and run and fund the legal costs and fight the case for the former employee. And the case we came across where we discovered this Uh, the person on the other side of the civil action had no idea that the the funds were coming from the taxpayer and that they were up against essentially a limitless financial power. And if I remember correctly, the official who let slip that this was the case in a phone call was reprimanded, we think, thereafter for allowing it to be known what was in the conditions of contract of public servants funded by the taxpayer. So evidently we do not have a right to know how those we pay to work for us work and what they're given. Well, we, we discovered this by getting an inquiry started by, the, by Audit Scotland, and uh, they gave us an explanation as to where this, where this money had come from and what authority had granted the money and what the legal authority for granting this taxpayer's money for a private civil action uh, had come from. And they gave us three answers. The first two were false. And when we checked them out, we found they were an error, and we went back and back a second time. And the third answer we got was actually correct, and it's it's in the conditions of contract. So then we have no classic equality, certainly not equality of arms in your case there, David. Uh, but then the next definition of equality is equal chances to get money as society gets more grasping and as the French Revolution kicks in with its materialistic view of rights. So the French enunciate this principle, and again it's international, I'm not just digging at the French here, of égalité devant les charges publiques, which means if someone goes bankrupt, then everyone has equal rights to compensation if the state's involved in sorting out the compensation. So first come, first serve doesn't apply, you have to have an equal share of that. So it's already got bastardised and... uh, alloyed this concept but then of course we get to the 20th century and marxism starts agitating in earnest in its cultural forms and so what we start hearing is that equality doesn't mean anymore equality of opportunity everyone getting a chance to compete uh, for tenders or to 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 work unmolested in their jobs no equality from henceforth must mean equality of outcome which is a bed of procrustes you know you you have to stretch everyone out or lock their feet off until they lie Uh, exactly uh, at the same length on the bed, as it were. So this new hijacked term hit for this is equity, 
which as we'll get to in the historic part of this podcast series, historically is completely different in meaning equity is a category of law distinct from the common law, uh, fair principles. But equity's come back from American Marxist agitation into the language. And these days we even have two definitions of equity. Uh, if a term gets tired or too banded about, the first trick to look out for is people trying to nuance it by putting an adjective on the, f- the start of it, even if by so doing they neutralise the meaning of the noun. For example, justice becomes social justice or economic justice or environmental justice, thereby negating the justice aspect because it's not justice to rob people in the name of this new kind of justice. But what we have in this case is equity isn't enough because equity, you see, is only formal equity. So the 2010s see the rise of we want real equity. Uh, you know, the, you see this again more on American campuses, but people are lined up by some semi-official person on the first day and told, take two steps back if you're white and take another step back if your parents are still married. And uh, those of you who come from favoured uh, pet groups, take a step forward. And, and, this, and this is, you started off here, Alex, by mentioning totalitarianism. And this is a, another route into unlimited state involvement in everyone's life. Because the nature of humanity is we're all different. There are not two people who are the same. And if the state's role becomes to make everyone the same, then the state's role is without limit and the state's oppression will be without end because there will always be differences. Some people will be more attractive. Are we going to mess them up a little bit so that they're ugly like the rest of us? Some people are more talented. What do you do with them? Uh, And on it goes. There is no end to the division between people until you come down to the the individual. Uh, That means that the control by the state will be everywhere, right down to the individual level in all aspects of our lives. And that the concept of rights that we started off with will have been entirely reversed. Which really brings us to next episode's theme, because we started at the era of Churchill, and Churchill gave a speech that we recently featured on UK Column, accurately prophesying that this socialistic system would require state officials managing the minutiae of people's lives, which he called a tyrannical hand uh, clamped across their mouth and nose. And yet this is the same Churchill who said that democracy is the least bad system in his famous quote about it's not perfect, but all the others are even worse. Yet we've just seen today that democracy is being used as a pretext to force people to give up their money and their opportunities and the fruit of their labor and sacrifice their time and energy for uh, some some so-called general good. So ultimately, perhaps Aristotle is borne out here when he says that democracy is not the best option, but it's the second worst, the worst being tyranny, and that democracy is the penultimate stage of the slippery slope, and that it always devolves into tyranny. Closing thought from either of you, are we seeing this slide of democracy into tyranny? Is it inexorable? The view that democracy has within itself the seeds of its own destruction and that the, the end point is a slide into tyranny is one that I think has a, a lot of evidence behind it. And uh, I'm looking forward to our next discussion where we can explore this much more fully.
So if you're not too scandalized, join us next time for episode four, when we will take a dive into democracy. <laughs>